Moncrief on News Talk. Now, George Harrison has often been described as the quiet Beatle, but with such an extraordinary life of ups and downs, it hardly seems a fair moniker. A new biography delves deep behind the public persona. And joining me now is its author, Philip Norman, a legendary rock biographer and author of The Reluctant Beatle. Philip, how are you today? Fine, thank you very much. Uh, since we last talked, which wasn't that long ago, uh, the Beatles have had yet, a number, uh, yet another number one, um, which, which you weren't really blown away by, were you? I thought it was terrible. Um, yes, um, it didn't sound like the Beatles, didn't sound like John Lennon. It sounded a bit like the Beatles' pastiches, the, the Electric Light Orchestra in the 1970s, but a, a really a mess, I thought. Uh, now, in fairness, if George had been alive, there's every chance this would, never would have seen the light of day. Isn't that true? That's true. Um, this was kicking around in the 1990s when the Beatles anthology, that great series of um, memorial albums came out. Um, and George was very much against releasing this at the time. And for, for once, they listened to George. The irony is the only sort of faintly Beatle sounding bit of this track is the guitar, which sounds a bit like George's signature guitar. Um, but George definitely wouldn't have let it go out. Well, I suppose you could say they didn't listen to him in the past and they weren't listening to him then as well. Um, you've gone, it was a man of many um, different characters. You've gone for the reluctant Beatle to describe him as. Tell us a bit about that. Well, he wasn't a reluctant musician. He was anything but. He taught himself how to play the guitar when he was 14 years old by listening to the radio and working out how solos and intros and licks were played when other it was called skiffle in those days before the rock bands there were skiffle groups and george could always play the, the difficult bits that's how he got into the uh, the skiffle group called the quarrymen with john lennon and paul mccartney <clears throat> what he really hated was when the screaming started the beatlemania and the screaming just drowned what they were playing and drowned george's very carefully crafted solos and and the, particularly in America, the hysteria in America. There was no, virtually no security and the stage would be invaded. He would have to play with a couple of hysterical young women literally hanging around his neck and he really hated that. What was the other side of it though? Because he was very much the junior partner to the, the greatest songwriting partnership in history and they, they weren't very understanding of him, were they? That's true. Uh, he was up against this amazing partnership with John Lennon and Paul McCartney, which was very, very, I mean, it, it was so prolific. They wrote with such ease together, first of all, and then separately, then coming together to work on the songs in the studio. Their producer, George Martin, who was a wonderful man in so many ways, was so hypnotized by this incredible combination of Lennon and McCartney. He really didn't notice George very much. He, he did say in later, later life, to me, I was always rather beastly to George. He did eventually realise George's quality and worth. It took a long time and George had to put up with a lot of rejection from John and Paul before he actually got more than one, about one track on per Beatle album. But you have to say, when he did get his tracks onto an album, they were absolutely spectacular. I mean, if knocking him back was what resulted in, in producing uh, Here Comes the Sun and Something for the Abbey Road album, um, God, it paid off, didn't it? It did, but then lots and lots of other things that were good, you know, were, were rejected. Or he didn't bother to offer them, in anticipating they would be rejected. So when he came to make this uh, stunning solo debut, which was a three-album set called All Things Must Pass, he had so much sort of back 
catalogue, you know, that it never, never got me where to choose from. But the upshot of that is that when he does get it, it makes him the most successful solo Beatle, doesn't it? That's true, yes. Uh, it, it, uh, his solo debut outsold Lennon's and McCartney's, respectively, and still does to this day. And on top of that, uh, when the Beatles are breaking up and the world is, is looking to them to see w- what, what happens next, he kind of steals the zeitgeist a bit, doesn't he? He's, he's, he's kind of, he presents a vision of where that whole world would go. He did, because he had so much really top-quality stuff to put onto that, that triple album. And also, he had Eric Clapton running the studio band. So this sort of mixture of faintly sort of mystical, um, My Sweet Lord, you know, this like an anthem for any religion, any creed. The Lord is never really named, it's just a, a power. Um, plus this amazing, powerful backing uh, with Clapton very much to the fore. Of course, it looked like the direction of pop and rock in the early early seventies. It looked like the mature side, didn't it? It looked like kind of the Beatles had come of age, really, with that kind of. Uh... <clears throat> That's true, and he could carried on, you know, using up this sort of his kind of, you know, his his sort of uh, his, his his spare tracks for long after that that first album. So he comes out of the Beatles probably better than the rest of them. But where does it kind of go for him from there? Well. <clears throat> It really sort of up and down. Um, he, he, he was of massive contradictions. Uh, that's what makes him interesting to me as a character. Anything you think about George, um, there is something to contradict it. He's called the Quiet Beetle, and yet one of his great close friends, Michael Palin, of the Monty Python troupe in those days, said that as far as Palin remembered, he never stopped talking. Um, he, he railed against the material world, you know, thinking too much about money and possessions. That he wrote the first pop song complaining about income tax. He, he organised an amazing free charity concert for Bangladesh, which really was a, a you know nobility, which sort of showed that pop musicians weren't necessarily just greed, greedy egomaniacs. This, uh, yes, again, he had an affair with Ringo's wife. He, he he broke the first law of being a Beatle. You don't do that with another Beatle's wife. There were so many contradictions, and, and, and you know this picture of him being spiritual and and, all the, and then carrying on like that. It's it's hard to wrap your head around it. Um, on top of that, though, he has he has some things that he had a hand in, uh, which are spectacular, aren't they? And handmade films is one of them. Well, that's true. He had much more. He was more multi-dimensional than any other Beatle. So, as well as being a performer and songwriter, he was also a record producer. He had his own label for a while. Um, he followed, uh, although he sort of loved gardens and nature, his own huge garden. He wanted to be remembered as a gardener more than a musician, and yet he also couldn't keep away from the uh, the pits at uh, Grand Prix races. He was a Formula One fan. Um, he got into the film business quite by accident through the Monty Python team, whose uh, film, Monty Python's Life of Brian, had the funding stock, and the producers realized it was totally sacrilegious and offensive to absolutely everybody in the world. George mortgaged his house, Friar Park, to get them the money to finish uh, to finish that movie. And, and then after that, he became involved in producing films in the 80s, which was a great period, actually, for the British cinema. Now, if you take that, that those films on their merits, they're fantastic. Um, and Life of Brian in particular is hugely important in this country. Um, but on the financial side, it's, it's a disaster for him, isn't it? It is. He, he, he really was obsessed about money, but he would never read uh, contracts or documents. So first of all, he was managed as a solo performer by Alan Klein, who, who 
robbed the Beatles blind before that. Then he took on an even worse fraud called Dennis O'Brien. Um, uh, George was kind of short of ready money when Dennis O'Brien owned a, his own private island and a yacht. I better, ju- I better just say for listeners, by the way, that that's not the Dennis O'Brien who previously owned this station. It's a different uh, Dennis O'Brien, right. an American businessman. Right. I think they might be just... I didn't know uh, that was the, the, Yes, a very, a very famous man. So I just thought I'd better uh, be clear on that. Um, so yeah. this man was, was a business partner that, that he got involved with after Klein... Um, who didn't do well by him, did he? Well, um, th- th- there was supposed to be an equal partnership in this film company called Handmade Films. Um, and they were both supposed to sign uh, the guarantees for the various bank loans which, which uh, funded uh, many of these successful, but not all successful films. Uh, but O'Brien simply did not sign the, the, the guarantees. So George, in the end, was liable for any losses on these movies, and there were considerable losses. And he was looking at debts of about uh, thirty-eight million pounds in the end. Total disaster. Oh my God! And there was talk of him um, at times driving to the Apple offices to get cash from the staff there to pay his gardener. That's right. Yes, and uh, um, you know he he just he he would never look into his own sort of balance sheet. You know, not not like Paul McCartney, who was absolutely assiduous always with that. Um, and O'Brien. I, Saying that everything O'Brien did was to save George tax, to save from the clutch from the clutches of the hated tax man, and so he he wouldn't still would not believe it when very trustworthy people told him he was being robbed. He wouldn't believe them. He'd throw them out of the house. And, and some of those people were were the the his friends um, in Monty Python who who were saying to him. God. And on top of that, just before we go, like one final thing on the finance side of things. Alan Klein uh, ended up kind of suing him through the My Sweet Lord song, didn't he? That's right. Well, that's a very unfortunate plagiarism uh, case over his this huge hit, global hit, My Sweet Lord. Was, um, it did have a very similar riff to a song from the 60s called He's So Fine by the Chiffons, a female, a female vocal group. And their very small publishing company did sue him. And it started off, Alan Klein was represented, George, when the whole thing started. Um, and Klein tried to buy off this, this, this lawsuit. But then, then he sacked Klein. So then Klein went over to the side of the plaintiffs and made life hell for George by keeping this lawsuit going. God almighty. Keep your, your friends close, your, your enemies close, and your... your um is your friends close, your enemies closer? <laughs> yes, my God. Um, you, you talked to people who knew him, including Patty Boyd, for whom he wrote one of the most beautiful songs of all time. What kind of picture did she paint of him? Well, still very loving. Um, no bitterness at all. Uh, he didn't treat her well. And I mean, her divorce settlement was, by modern standards, I mean, pathetic. Um, but she, she, she said George was sweet and lovely until he learned to meditate. Usually meditation turns people into nicer individuals. In George's case, it didn't. And uh, uh, then you could switch very instantly from um, being very sort of spiritual to wanting to do coke and, and get drunk uh, and play around with women and then suddenly switch back into the pious mode. You never, you, 
you just never knew which one you were going to find. That's what she, she used to say. She didn't know if his hands were in the prayer beads or the cocaine every day. My God. Um, they, they did say that he kind of, he did have very strong spiritual beliefs and in the run-up to his death, his, his wife was saying that he had more than made, made peace with the fact that he was going to pass. Is, is that the truth? Um, I think it's true. It is true, although it, it was a horrible thing to happen. You know, only eight, you know, fifty-eight years yeah, old. So young. And he was just ready to, for another sort of burst of popularity as well. Um, but his life had been punctuated by dramatic, sudden illnesses right from when he was a small boy, and he had a certain fatalism that um, Eric Idle said George would say. You never know when you're going to die. You might as well accept that and be ready. Um, but at the same time, you know, he had a lot to live for. Um, I, I think there there are many people who, for for uh, many people, find him one of the most loved Beatles, and I think almost regardless of what they read about him, that's going to continue to be the case. Um, but thank you very much, Philip, for jo- joining us today, Philip Norman, the legendary rock biographer and author of the new book, The Reluctant Beatle. Moncrief weekdays at two p.m. on News Talk.